Amen. All right. Well, if you want to turn in the Bible to Acts chapter 2, we're going to be reading there in just a moment. A couple nights ago, we had, um, I thought it was a really, really fun and exciting banquet focused on global missions and one particular mission that some of us are very attached to called Operation Saturation. And I wanted to give you the quick high level of what that was about, uh, just so that if you missed it, you could maybe catch up a little bit. One of the things that is very striking if you look at a map of where Christians are located in the world is that if you happen to have been born in the U.S. or in Europe or a few other places, the likelihood that you have a church in your community is really strong. Obviously, around here, there's churches all over the place. That's not the case everywhere in the world. Some places don't have any Christian churches of any variety. And so it's still possible there are people out there who have never met a Christian believer or who've grown up in a community where there was no church. And so many of those very unreached communities we find in Asia, particularly in India. And, uh, and so Operation Saturation is a mission aiming to start a disciple-making network of churches in every district or every county of India so that everyone in that country, 1.4 billion people, would have access to the gospel and a church nearby to them. And so what you see on the map there are the districts that have that kind of a network already started, and the aim is to essentially color in that whole map with a, planting the seeds of a network of churches that could multiply and love their neighbors and reach their community, teach the Bible, that that would be present in every place across India. And this is one mission. There's obviously other mission groups that are tackling other things, but our goal in Operation Saturation, our partnership with them, is to make sure this whole map is filled in. And uh, so I wanted to make this little resource available to you. It's at the info center this morning and also kind of around the lobby. Uh, this is the annual report. And so if you, our, our team put this together, if you open it up, there's a, there's a letter from me in the beginning kind of explaining the mission, how it works. And then there are stories from all across the region that are, the regions that are colored in, how God is working. And uh, stories of just the Bible getting into a place that's never been before and the, the amazing life change that you see from that. Last year, Operation Saturation, uh, through the, all the national missionaries that are attached to this, was able to start 55,000 Bible studies, many of those trying to reach people that have never heard about Jesus before. And, uh, and out of those Bible studies, there are about 5,000 new churches that were planted just in 2022. So we're praying for even more fruit this year to continue to see that map color in and all the people who live inside of that map at least have access to the faith, hope, and love of Jesus. So if you're interested in that, I'd encourage you to pick up one of these annual reports. You can kind of be briefed on that. And if you have any questions, you can feel free to talk to me or one of our leadership team. We'd love to fill you in on just what is one of multiple really important missions that our church gets to be a part of across the world. And uh, so I'd ask for your prayers about that. And, uh, and just as you, as you consider, as you pray, recognize that you have a part to play in the global Great Commission, not just the local mission that we have as a church. We'll, we'll see that in the book of Acts as we keep studying, that there's a local expression of church where we pray, we worship, we fellowship, we serve our neighbors, but there's also a dynamic where we have to send people to places that don't yet have the gospel so that everyone and everywhere uh, all have the same kind of access to the blessings of Jesus and all of his truth that, that we do. So we're praying for that and excited about that. If you have any questions, you can talk to me. As we turn to the book of Acts, we see the beginning of the Christian movement that we're still a part of today, right? So the Christian movement 
if you think about it, kind of advancing throughout the world, there was a time uh, back in, I think somebody can correct me, maybe Jill Shoup knows, no, I think it was 1943, that's when this church was started, is that right? Some of you old timers, you have to admit that you were there at that time, right? But the uh, 19, I think it was somewhere around that time. And, uh, and so since then, you know, the, 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 the gospel in this place, there's been a, a light, there's been a testimony, there's been the ability for this church to then serve and care for people in this community. And, and we're still, there's still need for that in the U.S. and all around the world. It started at Pentecost. It started with what we talked about last week. When the Holy Spirit came on the first disciples of Jesus, they were then empowered to start sharing the gospel with others. And as they did, churches were started, disciples were made, the movement started to multiply. And as we discussed last week, one of the first miracles that happened as the Holy Spirit came to those disciples is that they were enabled to speak in the languages of the other people who were there present in this festival called Pentecost, so that, the, so that the Word of God wasn't just, it was kind of a demonstration, this isn't just for a localized group, this isn't just for the Jews in Israel anymore, this isn't just if you're directly a follower of the rabbi named Jesus, no, Jesus is the Messiah for the whole world, and as a demonstration of that, the Holy Spirit enabled those first disciples to speak in the languages of the whole world, so that more people could immediately have access to the gospel. So that's what had just happened in our narrative, and now we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, kind of see where things go from there. Last week we talked about the Holy Spirit being the third person of the Trinity, so we realized the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit make up what, the person we call God, and there's some mystery in that, how three people and is one God. The fulfillment of Jesus' promise to his disciples that they would receive power. Remember Jesus said to his disciples that after he would leave, he would send help, he would send a teacher, he would send comfort, and that through the power of the Spirit he would send, the disciples would be able to do greater things than Jesus was showing them that he was doing in that moment. So that's the Holy Spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit that still is at work in and among us. Um, so he's our empowerment for action, he's also the way that God's power will multiply globally. So when you think about even like that map I showed before, it's Coloring in that map is not just a matter of human strategy, uh, just like starting a church in the, a nearby town right here. This isn't just a matter of like, well, what's the most strategic thing to do? That's important to think about, but what we need isn't just strategy. We need the power of the Holy Spirit, and when, when, when He comes into the picture, unexpected things happen, and that's exactly what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, all right? So chapter 2, verse 14 We'll start reading there, and I'd encourage you to have a Bible with you and open today. I mean, I'll, I'll read it to you. You don't have to read along, but in a little while, I, I want you to be able to look at the, back at this text. We'll do a little exercise. It would help you to have a copy of the Bible in front of you or your app open or whatever so you can kind of read along. So Acts chapter 2, verse 14. As the, remember, the crowds were amazed, and there were people skeptical and people upset, and some people were like, maybe this whole group is just drunk, and so Peter steps forward. In verse 14, with the eleven of the apostles, and he shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as you, some of you are saying. Nine o'clock in the morning is too early for that anyway. No, what you are seeing here was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. In those days I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark, the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious coming day of the the Lord's arrival. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God raised him back from the horrors of death and raised him back to or God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. For death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life, and you fill me with joy in your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand, and the Father, as God has promised, gave the Holy Spirit, gave him, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, to those who are far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the sharing and meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions, shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, 
all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So some pretty exciting stuff happening here. I'm reminded as I think about Peter standing up in front of this big crowd of what we said last week. Remember that somehow something really miraculous happened because the disciples were transformed from doubt, doubtful, you know, disheartened. Peter was even denying Jesus just a few weeks before this story happens. Something happened in between that and today that has made Peter become this incredibly bold witness. And what was it that happened? Well, Jesus rose from the dead. That will give you some confidence. And now Peter's been filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's able to stand up. One who was, he was afraid to even mention he was a follower of Jesus before. Now he's pointing at the crowd going, you killed the Messiah. I mean, this guy has boldness, right? So we, we see the power of God at work in their lives. But I think also about the audience that Peter was talking to. I think it's significant because when you understand the audience, you can understand some of the message as well. Uh, Peter was speaking to residents of Jerusalem. Now, in our context, when we think about a big city, we wouldn't really expect that it would be feasible for like the residents of New York or the, even the residents of South Bend or something to all come together in a crowd and hear a message. Like That would be kind of hard to pull off. But in Jerusalem, back in the day, there weren't that many people there, so you, you had buzz throughout the whole town about Jesus, remember the triumphal entry and the palm branches, people thought the king was coming, then they, they turned around, they started shouting, crucify him a week later, now there's rumors that he's risen from the dead, some people are saying, I saw him alive, other people are saying, no, it's all a hoax, and so th- this is the big news, right, that's happened. So the residents of Jerusalem are in this crowd. But there are also some of the faithful Jewish people from around the world who've come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. So those people who would be willing to make that pilgrimage, they were likely among the more faithful Jews. They were the ones that really understood the depths of God's law. They they would have known the Psalms that Peter was quoting when he talked about David. They, They would have known all that maybe by heart. And so as they're hearing all this, they're they're coming into this situation, there's all sorts of surprises. Uh, They weren't expecting this trip to Jerusalem to be the trip where they would learn about the Messiah, but God is giving all sorts of evidence to them that this is real. Okay, the other dynamic here, if you imagine this crowd and all these people, remember 3,000 people became Christians that day, so we would assume the crowd would be bigger than that, right? So this this is a lot of people gathering in response to this move of the Holy Spirit, some of the people there were very likely the ones that had their fists raised just weeks before this saying, crucify him. And they were following the Roman guards, the chief priests, the whole narrative of the crucifixion of Jesus, and they were the ones celebrating that he was dying or maybe even mocking Jesus on the cross. And now here they are seeing supernatural evidence that God is at work recognizing their hearts, it's really hard for them to keep denying that Jesus is alive. They're watching the disciples now with supernatural power. And so as Peter lays this case out before them that Jesus, in fact, is the Lord and the Christ, and they killed him, it says they're cut to the heart. It says finally, it's like the scales fell off of some of their eyes. And they look up and they go, what should we do? Can you imagine that moment, what that would feel like? To, to realize this isn't just like you missed it. No, you were actually an enemy of God. You were actually calling for the killing of your Messiah. 
So they realize this, and then Peter gives them a path forward, right? But first, let's dig into what Peter said just a little bit. And I, the, the thing that struck me for myself as I was studying this, and you know, sometimes you read a text over and over again, and like different things jump off the page each time you read through it again. So something that struck me was between verses 17 and 36, how many things that God did like that God either directly initiated or said he was going to do, and it came true in this moment. So I I thought, before I share them with you, I'd give you a chance to look at this, I found 12 things that either, in, in just those few verses, God himself said, I'm going to do it, and like it's happening right now, or it says like God and then some sort of an action verb, like God made this thing happen, advanced the story. So I want you to look down at your text if you have it there, and just go through and see how many you can pick out, all right? I found 12, right? Kind of doing a deep dive. So as you go through it, you start in verse 17. Wow, in, in those days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit. So there's number one. God's going to pour out the spirit. I'll give you about 30 seconds. See how many more you can find. Ready, set, go. might be possible to find more than 12. Let's go through a few of them, right? There's a lot. This would be fun to come back to, but I have a reason why I want you to kind of consider how much God is doing in this text. Okay, so we mentioned the first one, 17, I'll pour out my spirit. So God is initiating that. He says it again in verse 18, I'll pour out my spirit. 19, I'll cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Gone to 22, 22, God publicly endorsed Jesus, right, by allowing Jesus to perform miracles that kind of help people see Jesus really is from God. Verse 23, God knew what would happen and had a prearranged plan for what the right outcome would be. Notice there's something that, like we do, or the people in the story did, Right there in that verse 2, they nailed him to a cross and killed him. Um, But then verse 24, we're back to what God is doing. What did God do in verse 24? Released him from the horrors of death, raised him from the dead. Okay, then we see in the prophecy from David, verse 28, he showed the path of life. He filled the person with joy, and ultimately that's Jesus. And now by identifying with Jesus, that can be you as well. Um, Dear brothers, think about this, verse 29 um, Jesus here is, is portrayed by David as one who is alive, and he says this is the Messiah's resurrection, a prophecy of that. So verse 32, God raised Jesus from the dead. We're all witnesses of this. And then verse 36, like I said, there might be more if you jot and tittle this one a little bit. Verse 36 is the key. Let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, 
to be both Lord and Messiah. Now, recognizing God's part in this story, to me, is a really important recognition of what, why the gospel, like this, this good, why this is good news to us. This is not a story of human effort and human religious customs somehow adding up to a pinnacle where we say, okay, now they unlocked the next level or now God is happy with them. Who is the initiator of this whole storyline? Who is doing the work of the path of salvation? This is all God, right? Everything that we would celebrate here, we wouldn't go like, wow, what an amazing guy Peter was. Oh, man, look at these disciples. They, they were just like, they made it happen. They didn't make it happen. They, they were beneficiaries, just like you and I are, of the power of God, the Spirit of God coming on them, and things started to happen at God's initiative. So I look at all of that, and it makes me look up to heaven and say, wow, God, thank you. Like, I didn't earn this. I didn't deserve this. None of us did. None of the people back here in this first century story did. Lord, this is all your initiative and your grace to us that you would allow us to be a part of your plan, that you would set this up and make this happen. And so now we see it happening. We're all witnesses of this, and we say glory to God, not, not glory to us, right? What, what emotions do you suppose the people in the crowd were experiencing when this happened? Say, the, the people who were like travelers into the city, you could think like, man, surprise, thrill, shock, maybe skepticism to a certain degree. They're hearing about all this for the first time. Um, but what about the people who were in the city and they, they knew about the crucifixion, maybe they were part of that, and now they're here? Like, how would you feel if that was you? I'm ashamed, dismayed. Like it says in the text here in 37, you know, cut to the heart, pierced. You know, just like, wow, the sinking feeling in your stomach when you realize you, you've been wrong, like really, really wrong about life. So, so they come to this moment of saying, okay, what do we do? P Peter's given them hope, like, and this is hope they would understand, right? Because they're faithful Jews, so they know the scripture, they know the Old Testament. So when Peter mentions Psalm 16, like, they know where that's going, but they've not applied it to Jesus before. They're starting to realize, like, hey, this is actually not new good news. This is what God had planned all along. By the way, before we get to the punchline here, I also thought it was curious and interesting that in verse 33, in one sentence, Peter actually mentions all the members of the Trinity and kind of even showcases their function, right? So if you're a theology student, kind of notice this, as the Father as he had promised, gave him, which is Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to then pour out on us, just as you see here today, God is involved in every, every aspect of who God is, is also involved in this story uh, that we're experiencing. But, but the real question for us is verse 37. What should we do? What do you do the moment you realize that you've been on the wrong side of history, you've been on the wrong side of faith, you've you somehow missed the mark. What do you do? Well, Peter answers that question to this crowd. He says, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's two things that we're supposed to do or this crowd is supposed to do. 
And then there's two responses God has to that. Okay, so let's just look at that for just a moment. The first thing Peter said you have to do, like right out of the gate, what should we do? Repent. Repent means turn around. Change your direction. Realize you've been going the wrong way. Your assumptions about life, your old allegiances, the way you thought it was all working, like all of it's different, so just admit it. Like in humility, recognize I'm going to have to turn around and not go my old way anymore. Instead, we turn to God. And then Peter says to this group, be baptized. Now, why would this be especially important to this particular group? Right? In other parts of the Bible, when, it, when someone says, what should I do? It, it doesn't always mention baptism as something you have to do to put your faith in Jesus, right? But to this group, that's what Peter decided to say. So he could have said, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And that, that would have been accurate, right? But to them, he said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I was doing some thinking about why he would give them that specific direction. Like these are people who are already really rooted in their faith, like they get the Old Testament. So it's not an issue, like they're not beginners exactly, they're just beginners to the idea that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for. So, so they know that, but, but many of these people are publicly on the record as opposing Jesus. Like the city of Jerusalem was chanting, crucify him, crucify him. So their public record right now is very much aligned against Jesus the Messiah. So it's not quite sufficient for all these people who realize they just murdered the Messiah to just kind of make a little private decision in their heart and then walk away. No, if you're actually about to turn around, like if you really are repenting, if you really believe, it's time to say so. It's time for the whole world to know that you're switching sides. So baptism is an identification into a new kind of life. So he says, if you want this, like what are you supposed to do? Step forward boldly and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Demonstrate that you put your faith in him instead of in yourself. Trust him and tell everyone you're trusting him. If you really want to get on the right side of things, that's what you're going to have to do. So as a, a change your identification to Christian and start the new life based on Jesus being your Messiah, we follow the same practice today. Right? As, as we become Christians, we would say, okay, a, a next step that we take after we believe in our heart is to declare it, to say something about it. And one of the ways we say that's to, if we follow the biblical example and say, be baptized. As a Christian believer, you say, my next step is to start, start admitting it, start saying so. Um, so you have that opportunity, as Jill mentioned earlier, next week we'll have an in-church baptism opportunity. If you say, you know, I really haven't taken that step, so I haven't publicly set myself on the side of Jesus yet, we'd love to help you through that. And you could contact me or one of the church leaders. We could get you ready. And by next weekend, you could say, all right, I'll, in front of this group, uh, Lord, I want to declare, I want to identify with you and say, this is the heading of my life. Okay, so Peter says to this crowd, if you, if you want to change after everything we've been through together, repent and be baptized, and here's how God will respond to your humility. Even though you could argue that this crowd had just committed like a pretty significant sin, right? Like some of the people there directly opposing Jesus, their humility of admitting where they were wrong, repenting, and being willing to publicly say to the world, I'm changing sides, well, the promise to them is you'll be forgiven of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So the same power and joy you see in the disciples right now, that will be available to you. It's not like you repent, you grovel for a while, and now you become sort of like a sub-citizen under the leaders that, you know, while they really follow Jesus, they get all these perks and you're just going to kind of follow them. No, you can have access to the same thing the disciples do. The Holy Spirit is for everyone. It's all by God's grace anyway. When you step forward, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. So, this Christian community, as people did that, they started realizing now that their identities changed, now they're, they're together in something. And this is where we come to the current day and even to our church when we say, what are we doing here? Like, why are we together? What unites us? You could go to other parts of the world, church looks a lot different. You go across town and there'd be churches of different styles, different denominations, different groupings, but there's something that unites all of us together. There's a core that's not about exactly how you do everything. There's a core that's deeper than that. And we find this in the early church. We find this here in Acts 2. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42, summarizes what that first church community started to feel like. Remember, 3,000 people joined it the first day. So I was thinking about one of the challenges that at least I've got. I know some of you have told me this too. In this season of our church's life here at BCBC, like there, there's a lot of new people that have been coming. There's, I saw before, there's, there's new babies, but there's also new people coming in, seeking the Lord in this church family. We're celebrating that. That's amazing. But it's actually pretty hard to keep track of like lots of names coming at you all the time, right? So imagine being a leader in Acts chapter 2. Your church just went from 120, which is what was in the upper room, to 3,120 that day. And then what happened in verse 47? The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So their church was growing really fast, and I would imagine at some point they would even give up on like the name tag system or whatever and just say, hey, brother, sister, there we go, that'll work, because we're all in this family together, right? So notice the focus points when you look at that text. Teaching, fellowship, meals, prayer, power, time together. It's one of the reasons it's really important not to just think of church as you know, an extra once in a while. It has to be a part of your regular routine in your life so that you can actually identify with the community and be a part of the lives of other people who are following Jesus with you. Sharing, worshiping, giving joy, and the result of all of that, the Lord was adding to their number daily. Now what's exciting about Acts is it's not just the story of that Jerusalem church adding. That would be a fun story. But Acts takes it to the next level because in the chapters that will follow, it's not just about the Jerusalem church adding to their number, it's also about that church multiplying all across the world as they start sending people out, as some are persecuted, some are moving. Even if you think about right there at Pentecost, there were all these people from different language groups that heard the message in their own language. After the festival of Pentecost, where do you think they went? Well, they went back to their homes, back all across the Roman Empire, and the gospel started to spread and multiply. So we'll, we'll get to that as we walk through Acts. But here's the question we're asking each week as we walk through the story, and that is, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do within me? So we understand Acts is an example of what happens to people when the Holy Spirit invades their lives. When they say yes to God, when they start walking forward in faith and obedience, God empowers them supernaturally and then things start to happen. 
Things kind of like what we just read happened to Peter. Those things are still happening in the lives of everyday believers all across the world. And God has a mission for you and an intention for those things to happen through you and in you. They'll, they'll look different, right? In every person's life, in every era of history, it doesn't look the same. We don't look at this and go, I've got to do the same thing they did or preach the same message they preached. But Lord, would you use us in our generation to see the same kind of power that they saw in their generation? And that's not just a corporate prayer for like a church as a whole big team. That's a prayer personally for every one of us. Holy Spirit, what do you want to do within me? What do you want to do within me this week? Let's pray. Let's ask him that question. Lord, you've given us so much of your grace. Um, you didn't have to pour out your spirit. You didn't have to send Jesus. You didn't have to walk through this whole redemptive plan. You could have just turned your back on all of us and walked away, and, and I suppose that still would have been very just and appropriate for you to do. But you are gracious to us, and you've invited us in to your plan and your family. And even, Lord, to the people who directly opposed you, you still offered grace, and you still offer grace right now. So we thank you for that, and we pray that as we take our next steps forward, that we would be empowered by your Holy Spirit for who we're supposed to be talking to or where we're supposed to be going, what we should be doing. Lord, from the character of our hearts, the things that we think about and the motives that are inside of us, all the way out to our external activities and actions and priorities in life, Lord, at every level there, we want to follow you and we want your Holy Spirit to guide us. We know there are great needs right here around us in Berrien County, in Michigan, over in India, everywhere in between. Lord, there's such a need for your Holy Spirit's power. Thank you for entrusting us with it. We look forward to where you'll send us and what you'll ask of us from here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, see you next week. God bless you.